Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. In the world of true crime, not all cases get the same amount of coverage. There are some that take up every news segment during every time slot. These cases become basically embedded into the collective consciousness of society. Think Alan McCann, Natalie Holloway, JonBenet Ramsey, and more recently, Gabby Petito. Your guess is as good as mine as to why these cases get more coverage. To be honest, there's probably a lot of factors that go into it, and none of the ones that I can think of are really that great. Then there are the other cases, the ones who barely get a passing glance or any coverage. For those cases, unfortunately, justice feels like it's just an illusion, something that will never happen. They're the ones who need our focus and attention. They need our listening ears, our social media shares, our calls for justice. They need their stories told. And that's what we're doing with this episode today. This is the story of Charisse Diane Marie Houle. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. July 1st, 2009 was a quiet afternoon out in the rural municipality of Rosser, which lies in the Canadian province of Manitoba. A man named John was on his backhoe, trudging through another shift on the job. He and his crew were tasked with installing a pipe in the area when he noticed something laying close to the creek. He became curious and took a few steps closer. What he saw sent goosebumps running across his whole body. He started to pace, and he was unsure of what to do. There, in front of him, lying not too far from Sturgeon Creek, was the body of a young girl. She was face down, and even though he couldn't make out much of her condition, John knew that it was much too late to help her. After composing himself, John called 911, and the area around Sturgeon Creek was cordoned off as a crime scene. When a dead body turns up, there are a few key questions that investigators ask themselves. Who's the victim? How'd they get here? How'd they die? And who is responsible for this horrible crime? In this particular case, the answer to most of those questions would not be easy to come by. However, there was one thing that investigators were able to figure out relatively quickly. The identity of the victim. It turns out that the woman was really just a girl. She was only 17, and her name was Charisse Diane Marie Houle. And the reason they knew that was because the teenager had been missing for a couple days before the discovery of her body alongside Sturgeon Creek. The news that a dead body had been found near the creek didn't take long to spread around the tight-knit community. Before long, local news networks caught wind of the story and began to report on it in their evening broadcasts. At the time the story was being picked up by the media, Barb Houle was visiting Charisse's godmother for the day. She was a mother in turmoil, a mother whose baby girl had been missing. As they chatted, they had the news on in the background. The monotone voice of the newscaster droned on until suddenly, one of the stories caught Barb's attention. 
The report was about a young girl that had been found at Sturgeon Creek. The reporter didn't reveal the name of the victim, but Barb knew. Maybe it was because after days of not hearing from her daughter, she had prepared herself for the worst. Maybe it was because of the other identifying information shared on the news report. Or maybe it was a mother's intuition. As they say, mothers always know. Regardless, for Barb, it was a feeling deep in her stomach. While the newscaster continued their broadcast, Barb turned to her friend and said, I know that's Charisse. I just feel it. It didn't take long for Barb to confirm what she had already known. Her sister worked for Child and Family Services, and she called Barb to tell her that she needed to see her. Barb's sister made her way over, and as soon as Barb saw the look on her face, she knew it. Her baby girl, Charisse, was dead. Murdered. Charisse's foster mom, Linda, was at work when she heard the news. Again, the newscaster was telling the story of the girl found at the creek, but this time, the media had new information. The investigators had turned over the identity of the victim. When Linda heard Charisse's name come out of the newscaster's mouth, she jumped out of her chair, ran to the bathroom, and threw up. It was as if her body was rejecting the horrifying news that she had just learned, as if a physical purge would rid Linda of the knowledge that the girl who had once lovingly called her Linda Mom was gone. Charisse Houle was born on July 7, 1991, to Barbara as the youngest of four children. Barb said that from the moment Charisse entered this world, she was a happy, easygoing girl. Charisse and her family are part of the indigenous community in Canada. Specifically, they are part of the Ebb and Flow, or Ojibwe, First Nation community in Manitoba. One day, when Charisse was just a chubby-faced little baby, she did something that would earn her her own spirit name. Barb was chatting to Charisse when she heard Charisse say the word turtle. At first, she was unsure whether or not she had heard Charisse correctly, since Charisse was far too young to already be speaking at the time. Later that evening, Barb told Charisse's dad about what had happened. Understandably, he didn't believe her and thought maybe she had misheard or was hearing something. But just a few days later, Charisse's dad heard baby Charisse say turtle as well. From that day on, Charisse's spirit name was Little Blue Turtle. This spirit name turned out to be quite fitting for Charisse because she grew up to love the water. She loved to swim, and she also loved to roller skate. Roller skating became a bonding activity for the Houle family. They lived close to a roller rink, and they would often walk down together to skate. Above all of this, what Charisse loved the most was her family, and in particular, her older sister, Jessica. There was just a year and a half between the sisters— Perhaps it was the short age gap between them, but Jessica and Charisse were always joined at the hip, despite having vastly different personalities. Where Jessica was more reserved, Charisse was free-spirited and never had any trouble making friends. Despite their differences, the sisters were kindred spirits. This is why, when they were separated at just 8 and 10 years old, the two girls were absolutely, rightfully so, devastated. The sisters were surrendered into the care of Child and Family Services, or CFS. The reason for the separation has not been made clear in reports about Charisse's death. However, Barb is very firm that it was not because they were unsafe at home or because Barb and her husband were unable to care for the girls. The sisters had been handed over together, and Barb hoped that this meant they would be able to stay together. But as many of us know, the system doesn't always work that way, and Almost immediately, 
the young girls were separated and sent off into different foster homes. Over the years, they were moved from place to place, pinging around the murky world of the childcare system without being able to put down any solid roots to provide the stability that they desperately needed. Not only were the girls separated from their mother and the only home they'd ever known, but they were separated from each other too. It must have been almost unbearable. As with many children going through the trauma that Jessica and Sharice did, it wasn't long before Sharice started having trouble at school. Her teachers started to notice that her homework wasn't getting done and her behavior in class was becoming disruptive. Even though the two girls were miles apart, they felt the same. They hated being apart. They started to run away. They would go AWOL from their placements and couldn't be found for days. Though a better way to look at it might be that instead of running away, they were running towards each other. Jessica recalls, over the years since they had been taken from their parents, their social workers promised the sisters that they would be placed together the next time. But the next time would go by and the same promise was made again. Next time you'll be placed together. The girls got tired of waiting. They were also frustrated with the system that had separated them in the first place. At such a young age, seeing no other way to be together, they felt they had no choice but to run to each other. At times, care workers disgustingly used the girls' desire to be together to threaten them. Jessica says that the care workers would say that if the girls didn't act a certain way, then they wouldn't be able to see each other. So again, case in point, the girls felt like they had no choice but to run. During their time on the run, they would often go to their mother's or aunt's house. Barb remembers the times the girls would come to her as being filled with light and laughter. However, the girls would eventually be found hiding out at her place, and then they were sent right back into the system. During her years in the system, Charisse met a woman named Linda. Linda was a crisis stabilization worker who crossed paths with Charisse while she was at a CFS hotel placement. As a teenager, she was used to being disappointed by adults. Learning to trust Linda was difficult. It took time, but after a while, she did. Eventually, Linda and Charisse were so close that Charisse started to refer to Linda as her other mom. Linda knew how badly Charisse wanted to be with her sister and desperately wanted to find a way to make that happen for the girls. She was so dedicated to the cause that she rented out a house so she could foster both Jessica and Charisse at the same time. However, she was only ever allowed to have Charisse with her. The CFS workers claimed that Charisse needed to, quote, stabilize first before Jessica could come live with Linda. But Linda was adamant that the reason Charisse had been unable to stabilize was because she didn't have her sister with her in the first place. I mean, could she have really been that far off? But no matter what avenue Linda went down to reunite the sisters, she was faced with rejection after rejection. Despite Linda's best efforts, she was not able to find a way to have the sisters live together. After a while, Charisse was sent back into the system to be placed elsewhere. When Linda talks about Charisse, there's always a smile on her face. She remembers the times Charisse would once again run away from whatever home placement she was placed in. She would turn up at Linda's and head straight for the fridge. With snacks in hand, Charisse would sit on the couch, open up a laptop, and watch something, possibly her favorite movie, Legally Blonde. Linda couldn't help but laugh as she recalls Cherise practicing the bend and snap move that Reese Witherspoon's character in the movie does. Linda became Cherise's safe space. Though her world was in turmoil, 
Linda's home was like a calm oasis, maybe the only one of its kind in Sharice's world at that time. And now a word from today's sponsor. Gift giving is a major love language in my family. I love gift giving, but we all know it can really add up, especially if you have a big family like I do. That's why this holiday season, I'm shopping Quince. Quince is my go-to place for luxury essentials at affordable prices for everyone on my list, including myself. Because let's face it, your girl spoiled herself. I got this adorable crossbody bag in an emerald color and an adorable, fashionable, organic cotton sweater that I can't wait for everyone to see. Like Natalie said, Quince is affordable. They're 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They did that by partnering directly with top factories that cut out the cost of the middleman and passed those savings on to us. The best part about those factories that they partner with is that all of them use safe and responsible manufacturing practices with their premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. And I can definitely feel that in my rich, buttery, organic cotton sweater that's crew neck and I love it. And oh my God, the t-shirt I got is unmatched. It is so soft. And they look really cute on you too. Thank you. <laughs> Get affordable luxury for everyone on your list with Quince. Go to quince.com slash diaries for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash diaries to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash diaries. Happy shopping. As much as Linda, Barb, or any other of Sharice's loved ones tried to save her, they were up against forces which far outweighed any good that they tried to do. Sharice has spent her formative years in the system. Not only that, but the times where she ran away, she was exposed to the darker side of the streets. Both Jessica and Sharice started to experiment with drugs as young teenagers. There are also reports that they were introduced to sex work and were sexually exploited from a very young age. At times, Sharice would land herself in trouble and was sent to Manitoba's Youth Center, which is a correctional center for young offenders. If all of that wasn't challenging enough, when Sharice was just 16 years old, she found out that she was pregnant. She gave birth to a healthy baby boy while she was staying in the correctional center. Jessica would later state that her baby sister was shackled to a bed for the duration of her time giving birth. Despite how traumatic it must have been to give birth in a correctional center, Sharice was completely in love with her son. She now had something, someone to live for, someone to be better for. Sharice wanted to be the best mom she could for her little boy. This drive to turn her life around was something that no one had ever witnessed in Sharice before. And now there was plenty of hope that she was capable of it. While Sharice set out on a new life journey, her son was sent to live with a family member. She and Jessica joined a cultural program where they learned all about their indigenous heritage and were taught cultural rituals. This helped the girls become more in tune with their identity and their history, which seemed to give them new purpose and pride in who they were and where they came from and what they wanted for their lives. When Jessica turned 18, she aged out of the system and got her own place. It would only be 18 more months before Sharice would also turn 18 and be able to get a place of her own for her and her son. Until then, Sharice knew she had to get sober. She contacted a social worker to try and get placed in a treatment center. Unfortunately, there was no space for her, which left Sharice to battle the addiction on her own. Not long after Sharice reached out for help, she was found dead. It was just six days before she would have turned 18. 
right off the bat, police had very few leads in the case. Sharice had been reported missing in May, which was two months earlier. However, when investigators spoke with her family, they said that she had last been seen on the 26th of June in the 400 block area of McDermott Avenue in Winnipeg. Her body was discovered seven miles away on July 1st, 2009. From the beginning, there were loads of questions. Like, who was Cherise last seen with? What was her cause of death? How did she get to this place miles away from anyone she knew? And who killed Cherise Houle? Sadly, even now, more than 14 years later, these questions have yet to be answered. Facts and certainties are scarce in Cherise's case. Her autopsy records her cause of death as undetermined. No information about any injuries or evidence collected from her body has ever been released publicly. And yet officials did make it clear that her death was no accident. She had been murdered. It's not known who she spent her last living hours with or even who was with her on the last night she was seen in downtown Winnipeg. It's not even clear if she was murdered at the same location where her body was found or if she was transported there later. Initially, the Winnipeg Police Service was responsible for investigating Sharice's death. But in 2012, her case was handed over to Project Devote. Project Devote is a task force made up of Winnipeg police officers whose assignment is to investigate missing and murdered exploited persons. Since the task force has taken over the case, nothing has happened. There haven't been any new developments, no lines of inquiry, nothing. The case seems to have stagnated with no hope of justice in sight. While the intention behind Project Devote is admirable, its work has been called into question a number of times over the years. An advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls describes Project Devote as a waste of time. According to her, the task force consistently fails to produce any results. In addition to that, she says the task force is cold towards families. She went on to say they're a cold institution. They're not interested in building relationships. And she might be right about that. Barbara said that she's only spoken to Project Devote once since her daughter's murder. That one meeting occurred in 2014, five whole years after Sharice was murdered. Since the initial media coverage of Sharice's murder, the media has become eerily quiet about the case. Barb says this about her experience since her daughter was murdered. I don't have support. I used to at the beginning, but they're all gone. There are no more therapists. There's no more nothing. They say to reach out, but reach out where? Nobody at all has talked to me about Sharice. Nobody. The statistics surrounding missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada are shocking. Between 2001 and 2015, six times more Indigenous women were killed than other women in Canada. In the U.S., one in three Indigenous women are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. In a staggering statistic to couple that with, 67% of the perpetrators of those assaults are non-Indigenous. The lack of visibility for these cases that involve Indigenous women makes the women themselves much more vulnerable for exploitation. One of Canada's most notable serial killers, Robert Picton, was able to kill with abandon because the investigations into missing and murdered Indigenous women are not given the due diligence they deserve. In the end, he killed 49 women before he was caught. The plight of Indigenous peoples in Canada mirrors that of many Native communities around the world. One of the darkest chapters in Canada's history was the implementation of residential schools in the 19th century. 
These schools aimed to assimilate Indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. Children were forcibly taken from their families and forbidden to speak their native languages or practice their traditions. Rather than being places of education, these schools became places of abuse, neglect, and trauma. It's estimated that more than 2,800 children died because of their treatment at these schools. They continued to operate as recently as 1996, when the last school was finally shut down. Cherise was never a resident of these schools, but her story was shaped by them nonetheless. You only need to look at the statistics to see how much damage has been done to the Indigenous community. Between 1980 and 2012, Indigenous women represented approximately 16% of all female homicides in Canada, despite only making up 4% of the female population. On top of that, many of these cases remain unsolved, and the actual numbers are suspected to be far higher due to underreporting. Indigenous children are overrepresented in the child welfare system as well. They make up over 7% of the general child population, but they represent more than half of all children in foster care in Canada. Indigenous women are among the fastest growing prison populations in Canada. They represent over 30% of incarcerated women in federal institutions, despite being a tiny fraction of the national population. Then there are the social statistics, like Indigenous women facing higher unemployment rates, being more likely to be the victim of violence and exploitation, and suffering from higher rates of health issues. It would be nice to think these statistics would be enough to spark change in how crimes involving Indigenous women are addressed. Or perhaps that the disgusting infamy of Robert Pickerton would bring more attention to the issues of these invisible women. Sadly, more blood had to be shed before people started to listen. In 2014, a 15-year-old girl named Tina Michelle Fontaine was found wrapped in plastic and a duvet cover in the Red River located in Canada. She was weighted down with rocks, presumably to help conceal her body. Tina was also part of the Indigenous community, part of the First Nations people. Her life was eerily similar to Charisse's. She was also under the care of Child and Family Services in Winnipeg. She struggled with substance abuse and had also fallen into sex work. Tina had also been assigned a hotel placement by CFS. Just like Charisse, Tina had been reported missing more than once, but she always turned up again. Until she didn't. The investigation into Tina's death only produced one suspect. This suspect was a middle-aged man. Tina told her CFS workers that she had some sort of association with this man. Another witness claimed to have seen this man and Tina arguing. However, that was pretty much the extent of the evidence against him. The man was charged with Tina's murder, but was later acquitted of all charges. To this day, he remains elusive for Tina and her family. Tina's death did spark a conversation into the shocking number of Indigenous women who go missing or are murdered in Canada. This prompted the Canadian Human Rights Commission to request an inquiry into the reasons why these women were so overrepresented in these statistics. As a result, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was formed on September 1st, 2016. Off the back of the inquiry, the Manitoba CFS came out to say that it would no longer place children in hotels. The CFS was heavily criticized for the failure to protect the children under their care. Both Charisse and Tina had been murdered while supposedly under the care of CFS. There's no question that the system failed Charisse, Tina, and countless other Indigenous women and girls. One hopes that change is swift and that 
With it, justice will come for these two girls whose time on earth was cut far too short. Though both these girls had a challenging past, it was worthwhile to remember that they were not even 18 yet. Their brains had not even fully developed, and both of them were set up for difficulties, given the turmoil and trauma and instability they were facing. There's no way of knowing if they would be able to turn their lives around because they were never given the chance to try. Sharice was on the cusp of making that change. She was just days away of aging out of CFS and beginning her life with her son. As if the pain of losing Sharice wasn't bad enough, just three short years later, Sharice's brother Jordan was shot to death. He and a friend had been walking down a street in Maryland around midnight when they were shot. One person was later convicted in connection with the shooting. After her brother's murderer was found, Jessica reflected on the pain of not knowing who killed her sister. My brother's killer got sentenced, and that didn't do anything except put someone in jail and let me know who killed my brother. With Sharice, just knowing would give us some closure. But that's not really closure because it's not going to do anything but just put someone in jail. But I just want to know who did this to my sister and why they did it. The whole family has been torn apart by the devastating losses of both Sharice and Jordan. Jessica says that since the deaths, the family has struggled to get along. It's beyond difficult to fathom the level of grief that consumes Barb. She's a mother who has outlived two of her children. Life's not supposed to work out that way, and yet it has for Barb. And now she's left to pick up the pieces. Barb continues to relive the last moments she spent with her baby girl. The last time she saw Cherise, she felt a deep sense of not wanting to let her daughter leave, like a premonition warning her something was about to go wrong. When she said goodbye to Cherise that day, her daughter lay her hand on a tree. Now, whenever Barb walks past that tree, she touches it to feel some kind of connection to Cherise. One can only hope that Cherise and Jordan are at peace, that heaven has legally blonde reruns and one of Cherise's favorite meals, a Big Mac with supersized fries and a Coke. We also hope that true change comes, in particular for vulnerable Indigenous women, and that one day, all women can live free of fear of becoming the next victim spoken about on the evening news or our podcast. Be sure to follow us on socials at the Murder Diaries pod. And until next time, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.